spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. It's actually, dare I say, kind of delicious. And Rain, they're making it easy, aren't they? Yeah, uh, yeah, they're making it easy because Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting, free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash milkshake to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hi there, I'm Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan. And Rain, you know, something that you and I have in common, besides being both sort of ridiculously handsome Thank you. Men, I knew you were going to yeah, go there. Um, is that we're both rich. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like office residuals rich, but you know, we're both we're we're wealthy. We're wealthy. We're wealthy, sure. Um, not, I don't know if we're one percent. I think I feel like we might be the one percent. I think I'm definitely in the one percent. I think you're like two percent. Top three for sure. And, that, and that's true. And the other interesting thing about both of us is we started off very poor. So, Dirt poor. Uh, my family was outrageously poor as I grew up. I mean, when I was a child, we got powdered milk because we couldn't afford regular milk. And I got my clothes at the Salvation Army up until maybe third or fourth grade when we finally had enough money to kind of get to go to JCPenney. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Welfare cheese. Welfare cheese. That's my experience of uh How do you make Persian cuisine out. with welfare cheese? Well, what's funny is we're not, we not even cheese eaters, but we would still take the cheese. It was like— Did like you a, sell it on, on the equivalent of eBay? You know, I should ask my mom what we actually ended up doing with that cheese. All I remember is that you would open the refrigerator and there would be like a, like a cardboard box of like just— a big block of cheese. Yeah, government cheese. So how are you doing being wealthy now? Does this, do you have guilt, white liberal guilt uh, around your wealth? Like do you- Brown liberal guilt? Do you struggle with how you're going to give away the money? Or, you know, I I think, you know, this week's topic uh, that we're digging into is like, 
you know, is money evil? Is it possible for a rich man to get into heaven? Well, it's interesting that you say that because that, of course, comes from the famous uh, line of Jesus's, right? That it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, which I think is another way of saying no. Impossible. <laughs> yeah, the answer is therefore no. Now, I always heard about that phrase that they were referring to some gate or some pass through the mountains that was called the eye of the needle. And it's very difficult to get your camel through it, but it is possible to get your camel through it. Yeah, that's the interpretation that a rich guy came up with. Okay. <laughs> right. So some rich Christian in the third century was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But I guess the question that I have is, like, why is it, I mean, you and I have this kind of weird experience, you know, not a lot of people go from, you know, abject poverty to comfortable wealth. And we're both, you know, we try to be good. At least I try to be good. I try to help, you know, the world and you've got charities and, you know, I work with various um, organizations. But is it just about ameliorating my guilt? Right. That I'm, is that what I'm doing? Is it like a form of papal indulgence? Like, okay, well, I'll just keep making all this money and like buying all this stuff. And then every once in a while, I'll just give a little bit of money away and it'll be fine. You know, so many systems in the world are broken and dysfunctional and not functioning. And one of the main ones is philanthropy. Uh, and if you work in the nonprofit world, you'll see this all the time. There's organizations chasing grants and just kissing butt to rich donors and, you know, um, organizations that rent office space on Fifth Avenue. So, you know, a quarter of their budget is going towards these incredible, you know, offices to impress the hoi polloi in New York City. Organizations that have fundraising galas. Where you're looking around and like, yep. this thing must have cost hundreds of yep. thousands of dollars. Champagne and like, fountains. Yes, we're here uh, amidst the champagne fountain to raise money for the indigent poor of Africa. And you're like, what the, what the fucker? Like, how about spending a little bit of this champagne money yep. on that? Although I will say that a good chocolate fountain is definitely worth it. Our guest for this week's episode is going to challenge all of these sacred cows. And his name is Reza? Anangir Dardas. Who, among many other things, has argued that the rich giving billions in dollars to philanthropy is basically a farce to buy themselves coverage for all the bad things that they do in the world. Uh, he uh, is he's going to shake things up. Yeah, I mean, he's caused some, some real headaches uh, because what he's doing is not just challenging the idea of philanthropy. He's just challenging the whole reason why we lionize these wealthy people. You know, like everybody gives, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and, you know, mm -hmm. Elon Musk, you know, standing ovations for giving away billions of dollars in charity. And Anand is like, well, thanks for the charity. Maybe stop fucking up the world instead. Like, right. let's start there. So is there anything rich people can do? Can rich people be good? Can rich people be good? Can they do good? That's the question we're going to ask Anand. He's a journalist. Of course, his most famous book. The thing that started this entire conversation is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Or as I like to subtitle it, Why Rich People Suck. <laughs> well, this is right up our alley then. We're the rich people resenters. So uh, let's see what he has to say. It started to occur to me 
And I'm still ashamed that it took me a few years to maybe really speak up. But it started to occur to me you. that these rich and powerful people who are flying to Aspen to talk about making the world better, as I, as I began to learn about their day jobs, I realized that before they got to Aspen, they were causing the problems they were flying to Aspen to solve. Um, and at some point, when I was asked to give a talk there, I called bullshit. Um, and the bullshit sort of went viral. And I expanded the bullshit into a massive piece of bullshit called a book. And so here we are. So uh, it's, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I want to slow down for a moment here because uh, you said it took you a while to sort of get it. And I totally understand what you mean. Is it the reason that it took you a while? Was it because, I mean, let's face it, like, you know, you're like in private jets and you're hanging around with like Bill Gates and you're like doing shots with, you know, the Koch brothers. And you're like, this is kind of fun and it's exciting you're like your your perspective suddenly changes you you start to when you become rich adjacent right you start to see the world in a different way and so yeah it does take a while to suddenly peel back the layers and realize the vacuousness of of the whole thing i mean can can you can you sort of uh look at yourself and and uh, kind of recognize that that may have happened to you that you may have sort of you know, drunk, drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit. 100%. So, so I think there was a seduction, which is what you're getting at, which is yeah. true. And seduction buys silence and buys time. Um, but I think there was a, a, a deeper element, which also gets to sort of the, the, the core of your show in a way, which is that the Aspen world that I was in um, is suffused by a theology. And theologies are, you know, often coherent and and forceful and and also seductive in a in a deeper way and, and and the theology was that we live in this new age of doing well by doing good that you could change the world um, in ways that allowed the people on top to keep profiting and doing well that in fact the people who had benefited most from an age of cruelty were the best architects of the solutions to that age of cruelty um, that you could have your cake and give it back too, that we could come together in Aspen and, and have Goldman Sachs talk about empowering women and that everybody in the room was supposed to agree that no one was to raise the fact that Goldman Sachs would eventually plead out to fraudulent activity that helped put millions of women um, on the street. And, and it, was, it was pleasant. It felt like you were part of this thing where people were gonna change the world. And eventually, I woke up. It's a new year, which means it's time to leave behind the things that don't serve you, like overdraft fees. When your checking account balance is running low, the last thing you need is an overdraft fee. But with Chime, an award-winning app and debit card, you can save that hard-earned paper without paying overdraft fees. Eligible members can overdraft up to 200 bucks on debit card purchases and cash withdrawals. And listen, there's absolutely no overdraft fees. Make your first good decision in 2022 and join over 10 million people using Chime. Sign up takes only about two minutes and it doesn't affect your credit score. You can get started at chime.com slash milkshake. That's chime, C-H-I-M-E dot com slash milkshake. Take it away, Rain. 
Banking services provided by and a debit card issued by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Overdraft only applies to debit card purchases and cash withdrawals. Limits start at $20 and may be increased up to $200 by Chime. See Chime.com slash spot me. Hey, milkshakers, are you looking to take control of your health? Well, a good way to do that is to check GoodRx and finally stop overpaying for your prescription medications. See, listen, listen to me very carefully on this. Prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as $100. So that means you're never sure what you're going to pay or what you should be paying. So not only will GoodRx find you discounts, it will also let you compare and find the lowest prices at pharmacies near you, like CVS, Kroger. Even if you have insurance or Medicare, GoodRx often beats your copay price. In fact, anytime you need to fill a prescription, just checking GoodRx could save you up to 80%. Taking control of your prescription costs is free and easy with GoodRx. Check the website or download the free GoodRx app. I mean, I've got great insurance. But I also have like 15 kids and there's always something wrong with one of them. (laughs) I mean, the the amount of money that I pay on prescriptions for these many, many children is outrageous. And so I've I've started just going to GoodRx first before I go to the pharmacy, figure out like, I mean, there's got to be a better savings here. And there almost always is. So for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, whether you have insurance or not, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash milkshake. That's good R, the letter R, the letter X, dot com slash milkshake. Goodrx.com slash milkshake. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2021, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% on retail prescription prices. So let's let's take this way, way, way back. In the early days of humanity, it was seen that wealth was a gift from the gods, that the wealthy were more connected to the divine, that they were kind of anointed in some special way. That's why they were wealthy. That's why they were wealthy, because they were essentially good people and righteous people. So they were given this wealth. And I think, I mean, that existed for centuries. I mean, that I'm sure existed for centuries before the Bible was written. How, How do you see this? kind of like the the incessant need for humanity to put the wealthy on these pedestals. Yeah, It's such an interesting question. And so I think the way to answer that is what I am describing in Winners Take All is a an ancient, eternal um, tradition that has a new particular inflection in our time as it does in each time, right? And so... To talk about the eternal part first, you're exactly right. Every ruling class in history, and it's not just wealth, right? Wealth is not, has not always been the determinant of rulership, right? Um, and for example, I, I mean, I have a friend who's a very wealthy Chinese person. And he says, you know, it's interesting in China, I have a lot of money, I can do a lot of stuff, but it's very clear in China, I'm not in the ruling class. Mm-hmm. In America, I would be in the ruling right. class. But in yeah. China, yeah. I'm not because the party rules China, right? Um, and so, so there's always a ruling class, the eternal constant. And the ruling class always invents a story of justification. 
So fast forward to now, the question is, what is the particular inflection of that story in our time? Because I think only when we understand it can we dismantle it. And only when we dismantle it does it, as I say in the book, become possible again to make the world better without permission slips from the powerful. The story in our time, I think, the story of justification is that rich people in an age of inequality that we live in, that everybody knows we live in, that rich people who might be the first people we would suspect or resent, because obvious, <laughs> age, of, age of inequality, that those people are philanthrocapitalists. That's a word that sort of captures what I'm about to describe. That those people are these specially gifted people who are brilliant, capable, good at anything, able to swerve into any lane. You start a social network because you want to meet people at Harvard in the early 2000s. Now you're an expert on public education, <laughs> if you're Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> right. um, in addition to being an expert on breaking democracy. And, 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 and you're just this specially capable super being. And, and it's this idea that these people are these super creatures who are so capable of solving problems in a way that you and me and democracy are not. Simply because they're rich. No. They're rich because of some other quality they have. That's oh, the theory. I, yeah. It's very, the particular theory I'm talking about today in 2019 is very much about the entrepreneur specifically, right? This is not about the IBM executive who makes a million dollars a year. That person may fit in, to, may like kind of drag behind this theory, but this theory is really about the entrepreneur hero. And the theory of justification is because these people are so capable of solving any problem, mainly their business problems, but then, according to this theory, all problems, we must, A, leave them alone to make money in whatever ways they can, and we must accept when they don't pay us enough, when they lobbied and distort our public policy, when they don't pay their taxes. We must accept this because they are brilliant, and then they're going to make more money from doing those things than they otherwise would have. And then, with their extra money that they made harming the society, they will then deploy with their brilliant minds, that money to solve our biggest problems in ways that no one else can. We gotta leave them alone, we gotta leave them on top because only problems that they, they can fix it. Problems that they mostly caused. And this is the beginning, the, the first important crack in the armor. That, and, that, and at the heart of the book, um, in a way, the project of the book, the thing, Michael Lewis has this great line about, you know, writers are people who, who think uh, that the world is fundamentally misperceived some small thing, and, and you try to fix the world's perception of that particular small thing. The thing that I felt the world had misperceived, I mean, there were a few, but the biggest one was that the people who have been branded as the great solutionists of our age are the people who have caused many, many of these problems. And they cause them not only in the most flagrant instances doing crazy criminal things, although that happens, that happens more than you'd think, but almost all of them are complicit in that plutocratic class in a few of the following. Underpaying taxes, avoiding taxes, evading taxes, using fancy accountants that you and I will never be able to access to pay way less, to have big companies in America right. paying zero offshore in accounts. federal income taxes in a year, offshore, etc. That's one. Lobbying to distort public policy. If you are confident that you are going to hack it in the marketplace under the rules of the democracy, you don't spend $20 million lobbying in Washington. It's only if you're not confident that you're going to earn money on your merits that you, that you do that. Mm. Um, and, and then third, with regard to workers, finding every trick in the book over the last 30, 40 years, a lot of these new tricks over the last 30, 40 years to avoid paying people, 
dynamic scheduling, making people independent contractors. And so, you know, if you start to look at how many people who have made tremendous fortunes in our time can certify, and, and my email address is on my website, can certify that they have done none of those things. I, I would love to look at that list. But unfortunately, I've left the conclusion that the overwhelming majority are complicit in damaging the very society they would propose to be the leaders of healing. So that's unbelievable. That's one of the greatest single monologues I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. So thank you, first of all. Um, if I was going to argue devil's advocate, I'm going to be like I'm on Fox Business News or something like that. I'd be like, right. hold on. As a Tracy second. Morgan called it, devil's avocado. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, the devil's avocado. I would say, well, wait a second here. Now, Bill Gates created Microsoft, which created tools that are now being used by m hundreds of millions of teachers all around the world that help the ease of communication. And Elon Musk is advancing technology. He's employing hundreds of thousands of people like these jobs creators, these entrepreneurs are lifting all boats by their their efforts and what they've done. And all of those people that they're employing, the, the number of jobs that they've created through, you know, creating all these social media jobs, of, you know, tens of thousands of them that didn't exist, you know, eight Ten, years ago. Tens of thousands of social media strategists. <laughs> strategists and, uh, and data crunchers and, and whatnot. But that those people now have money to give to philanthropy and charity and to do good in the world and that they've enabled this. So how, how I'm, I'm sure someone would have done a better job than I did because I don't really buy it. But what, what would be your answer to that? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. One of the things I talk a lot about in this book is the idea that a successful society is a progress machine. It takes in a bunch of input activities and it spits out broad human advancement, hopefully. And on the first or second page of the book, I say America's progress machine is broken. Everything you described is all good stuff. It's all inputs. It's inputs to the progress machine, right? You invent great tools for teachers to use, fantastic, fantastic. No one's denying that. We, we live, I say this all the time, we have lived in a golden age of innovation. Right? Innovation is the Latin word for new shit. And, and we have lived in a, in a fertile period for new shit. Um, and I don't think anybody would say there hasn't been enough in the last 30, 40 years. So someone like Bill Gates, yes, has invented tools. And, and I'm also not denying that those did empower people and those did, I mean, of course, those, those did change the world. Um, here's the issue. All those things go into the progress machine, right? And then you look at where are we as a society in a more fundamental way at the end of that, right? And at the end of that, Bill Gates in particular in the 90s talked about how this digital revolution he was prosecuting was going to be a revolution of leveling, of social leveling. And he said, and I quote in the book, what hierarchies exist in the physical world are kind of unrecognized by the digital world and, and, and the digital world will serve to, to, to flatten those hierarchies. Well, it turns out that despite all that innovation, and all the medical progress we've had and new things discovered in that sphere, and all the new things that have happened, power and wealth have grown more concentrated in the period you're describing of all that new stuff um, than they were before. It actually takes fewer billionaires to account for half of America's wealth or half of the world's wealth than it did before all that stuff was invented. And so my argument is not that no one was ever empowered by a PC sold by Bill Gates. That would be a preposterous argument. I am someone who was empowered <laughs> by a PC uh, sold by Bill Gates, and I'm sure I'm not alone. 
the argument is despite all that good stuff, and we could keep going on and on and on with the good stuff, despite that, at the end of the day, when you actually look at the outcome of the society, the society's power equations are in a worse place than before, and that those tools have somehow served an agenda of consolidation and concentration. And I, and I think if you, if you looked at this subjectively and you, you actually asked people about the level of control they feel over their lives, the ability they feel to pass on a good life for their children, despite all the things that Bill Gates and other people invented, those numbers have all gotten worse. And we have to take that seriously. Imagine if there were Microsoft equivalents in India and China and Germany and Correct. Brazil that had been Correct. able to, you know, and, they, and the wealth could have been shared instead of like mm -hmm. all $100 billion of it amassed by Microsoft as, a, as an entity. That, that's, that's actually a, a very good point. And, 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 you know, it may be that there are countries in Africa, for example, that had they lived in a more competitive tech ecosystem – in which Microsoft was not a monopolist, might have produced tech companies that would have ended up paying corporate tax, which, as I was reading this week, is, is often an important, a disproportionately important tax in certain African countries. And those countries may have been able to provide malaria nets to their own people um, through the tax base if they had more tech companies able to grow um, and had not had that possibility eliminated. You know, as soon as I wake up, I'm on the go. I've got, I got to feed the kids. I got to dress them. I got to like make their lunches. I got to get them out the door. And then I got to dress myself and get into the yep. car. And I'm just like yep. running and running. And the next thing I know, I turn around and it's lunchtime and I forgot to eat. No wonder I'm so hangry all the time. But what are my options? I mean, I could run through a drive-thru, grab something that I know not's good for me. No, no thanks. I don't need any more of that in my gut but that's why I have Huel. Huel is human fuel. It provides human fuel. Human fuel. That's what it is. It provides all the carbs, proteins, fats, fiber, and 27 essential vitamins and minerals you need. And everything is plant-based. And they have a wide range of convenient on-the-go options for someone who wants to eat healthy but doesn't have a ton of time like me. Rain, you're a huge Huel fan. You know I love the Huel, Reza. And... Um I just have a Huel instead of breakfast and it gets me through to lunch. I feel light. I feel lean. I feel mean. 400 calories. It's tasty. I can sip on it through the morning and uh, it works out perfectly for me. Huel is proof that fast food can be good food. I love it. Rain loves it. And we think you will too. And right now you can get free shipping on your first order plus a shaker and a free t-shirt. Go to Huel.com slash milkshake. That's H-U-E-L, Huel.com slash milkshake. And you can get free shipping on your first order, plus that shaker and that t-shirt. Huel.com slash milkshake. You hear that sound? Hear that sound, Rain? That is, is that? my beautiful bottle of seed probiotics, which I can no longer live without. Fantastic. Tell us about them. Well, look, you know, I think people think they know, you know, what probiotics do and how, how they work. But I'm telling you that Seed's Daily Symbiotic is the real deal. I mean, not all probiotics are created equal. You know that. I know that. But this Daily Symbiotic is a broad spectrum, two-in-one probiotic 
and a prebiotic. It's a proprietary formulation of 24 distinct probiotic strains in scientifically studied dosages. Proprietary engineered two-in-one capsule that protects probiotics through digestion to ensure delivery straight to the colon, folks. It goes straight to the colon, Rain. Okay. So listen, you may have taken probiotics before and, you know, probably never even felt much of a difference. It's probably because the good bacteria wasn't even surviving your GI tract. Seed is designed differently. That's why it works. It will also support your gut barrier, skin health, heart health, micronutrient synthesis, like all those things that you don't really know what they are, but it just makes you feel better. So people have seen improvements in their digestion within 24 to 48 hours, and that includes bowel movement regularity. Yes. Someone say poop. And eased bloating. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash milkshake and use code milkshake to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash milkshake and use code milkshake. So it's funny. I love the idea of thinking about this as a theology because this really gets to the heart of what I find to be your uh, most interesting and and uh, provocative uh, argument, which is the whole problem with the concept of charitable billionaires, right? The the idea of the giving pledge. Uh, what what one of the uh, one of the billionaires who who is part of the giving pledge referred to recently as competitive philanthropy, because of course everything you know has to be a competition among these billionaires. But you know Warren Buffett uh, donated fifty five percent of his total wealth. Uh, Bill Gates has donated something like forty five percent of his total wealth. Uh, Bloomberg has given twelve percent. Um, just we just found out not too long ago that. That, uh, Jeff Bezos gave away $2 billion in 2018. And the problem that that I see, like, encapsulated in your argument is not so much that, okay, these people are giving away money, sort of good for them. It's the way that they are lionized for giving away these huge amounts of money. They're almost, you know, they, they become sanctified. It, it reminds me a lot of the sort of old idea of the papal indulgences, right? Which is yes. sin, 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 and then just give some money and then all that sin will just be completely forgiven and, and 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 forgotten about. And I remember when the news came out about Jeff Bezos, I, I think I saw a tweet of yours, which was like, you know, okay, well, congratulations. How about just pay your fucking taxes? How about that? Okay. <laughs> how about, how about yeah. pay your employees a living wage? How about that? And then keep your $2 billion. Okay. <laughs> you know, keep your fucking charity and actually pay your employees a wage that allows them to, you know, to, to, to live, to, to, to subsist. In many ways, the giving that you see right now is the symptom of a winner's-take-all society that gives very few people a virtual monopoly on the future itself. I think this is very important. What I think has happened in American life is the people on the top end of that gap have monopolized the future. When the rain, there, there has been, going back to the beginning of the conversation, an abundance of innovation, of new shit raining on this country over the last 30, 40 years. But when that new stuff rained on America, the very few harvested most of the rainwater. 
And what I'm really talking about is simply fixing the progress machine so that when the rain of new stuff falls on us in the future, um, most people's lives will get better, which is the actual and only meaning of progress. So let's bring it back to the listener right now. Let's say someone's listening and they're a school teacher and they make $85,000 a year and they're hearing all this conversation about billionaires and income inequality and philanthropy and and whatnot. Like, what are there any solutions, any messages that you have for them? Or is this just simply an awareness-raising, consciousness-raising kind of conversation? It's a great question. First of all, in that specific example, if you are a public school teacher listening to this, my guess is a lot of what I've said is deeply familiar to you because you have probably been, if my, if my past reporting and people reaching out to me is correct, meddled with by all kinds of billionaires already. In the last 10 years, if you're a public school teacher listening to this, you've probably had forced down your throat different billionaires' curricular tools. You've had to use this Facebook thing or that Microsoft thing as the condition for your school getting money. Mm. So a public school teacher listening to this, actually like many different types of people who might be listening to this, is not unfamiliar with this actually because billionaires have been so meddling in all aspects of society that, that very few Americans um, don't have contact with this. But, but to the question of what can someone like that do, I say to your school teacher and everybody else, think next time you see a problem, something, something you don't like in your society that is a shared problem, think of solutions that have four qualities. Public, democratic, institutional, and universal. That's good. Solve the problem at the root for everybody. Like pay your property taxes instead of, you know, giving uh, money for a teacher to buy some crowns. Correct. Here's, here's the fundamental question uh, that Rain and I are grappling with uh, in this episode is, is a personal one for us. I mean, Rain and I both grew up poor, right? We, we know what it, what it means to, to be on the other side of that gap. And now we're both rich. <laughs> not like ultra rich, not like flying around in our own private jets rich, uh, not in having like, you know, steaks and vodka named after us rich. Although I think you, you have a vodka named after you. Yeah. But, um, uh, but, you know, rich. And we both kind of like to think of ourselves as good people, people who, who care about the world and other people and who want to do good in the world. And yet we're grappling with this notion that we we are part of the problem. Like we're part of the system here. We're on the other side of the gap. And so, you know, can can we be rich and be good? Can we make money and do good at the same time? Or is the process of making that money so inextricably tied to the rot within the system that there is no other way to to kind of um disconnect ourselves from that that there's no that it, that whatever we do from this point on is very much in the guise of indulgences there's a deeper question about are you using your place of privilege whether it's in your business operations your creative work any giving back that you do are you using that to accelerate the dismantling of a bad system or are you using it to shore up a bad system and i think that is a very critical um, point of difference. You don't have to not give. That No one's telling you to not give. But there are some ways to give that would 
help certain people, but, sh- but in a way, increase the resilience of the bad system. And there's other ways to give that are going to start eroding it, right? So let me take one simple example. If you look at a lot of rich people love the issue of education right now, right? Because it feels like a good way to address inequality. You can see the he- kids you're helping if you donate. And, and the most you know, the dominant way that I see rich people getting involved, the people I've reported on for the book, is charter schools. And you get involved in the charter school, maybe you name the school, you get involved in the school. As one of my characters, Darren Walker, who runs the Ford Foundation, says to me in the book, you know, then you can tell all your friends you got three black boys into Yale. And, and, it, and it's a nice win-win, as we call it in the book. It doesn't hurt you. And if, if anything, and this is sort of what Bernie Sanders got at when he un, un, unveiled an education policy agenda, it actually keeps your white kids, your rich kids safe in their, you know, in their cloistered little world because it keeps minority kids and poor kids in the charter school. So you may be working to make that better, but it actually preserves what Sanders, I think rightly pointed out, has sometimes become a, a new kind of fancy separate but equal system. Um, so that's, that's the kind of change making that does make a difference in some people's lives, but actually tends to shore up a bad system, right? It doesn't, it's not changing who has power, it's not redistributing power. That same giver could do another thing, which they so seldom do, which is there are a bunch of scraggly lawyers around this country trying to win what is effectively a Brown v. Board style Supreme Court victory, which will take decades, um, to make it illegal to fund public schools by property tax. Mm. Make it illegal for one school to have $30,000 per pupil spending and the school a mile across to yeah. the, the way to have, you know, $5,000. Yeah. I think we would all, I mean, I've never met a conservative who justifies that in principle. So that's, just, so that's an institutional, ch- pursuing an institutional change that is much greater than just supporting one. And by the way, charity. as in Brown versus Board of Education, one Supreme Court ruling and that practice is illegal everywhere in the land the next day. Yeah. Right? There are a bunch of lawyers working on that. And I guarantee you, they have none of the millions flowing to the charter school movement, right? The Walmart family is not giving to them, but they are giving to charter school. Betsy DeVos. Because all the wealthy families benefit from, the, from that. Sure, exactly. The, 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 in the first form of giving, and this gets to your own dilemma, it's a way of giving that fundamentally preserves the system that allows you to stay on top. And so it's change that changes nothing. It's fake change. The second kind of giving is giving that puts your own privilege at risk, is willing to risk the system from which you benefit for the sake of something larger. And that giving is possible too, and there are people who do it. Um, and I think it is something, whether you are that public school teacher or you both or real plutocrats, it is, it is, it is something that it is possible for, for everyone to reframe and shift. And I hope everybody who reads the book will be able to think about what that means for them and apply it in their own lives. Okay, it's lightning round time. Here we go. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Yes. What do you hope happens after you die? Um, That people will, uh, you know, look up my books in the library. Do you pray? Uh, No, but but I'm looking into it. What's the one thing you know for sure? That the truth will win. And the final one, the main one, the one that we're most concerned with, 
What is your life's big question? How best should we live? Mm. That's a good one. Excellent. Excellent answer. Excellent question. Thank um, you. This has been like just mind-blowing and awesome. I'm so, so glad we got a chance. It's really fun. You guys are so thoughtful. I've been asked a lot of questions over the last uh, few months, but these were definitely the best. So thank you for your thoughtfulness. Yay, we win best podcast. Yay. Hey, Milkshakers. Uh, As you know, we love to bring you on the show. You can write us on social media. You can also leave a good review on Apple Podcasts, and we will find you and bring you on with your life's big searing question. Now we've got Connor. Connor, you're from Arizona? Yep, that's correct. Okay, well, what is going on with you? What's on your mind? Yeah, I have a lot on my mind. So what I'm thinking about today is in a world that is increasingly complex and intertwined, and there's so many things that are connected and kind of affect each other now, how can a person know what is an ethical decision um, and how can they, you know, is that something that changes with time or how is that something that you can uh, even know nowadays? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. Right, Rain? Absolutely. But that's true of both ethics and morals, which, of course, if you've had a college course in either, you know, are two different things, right? Ethics are like the rules of society. Right. Like the rules that society and morals are universal. Yeah. Norms of behavior and stuff like that. And morals. Exactly. Individual, uh, you know, more universal. And and hell, yeah, they both change as as the the world changes. Not always for better, by the way. (laughs) Um, But uh, but, you know, if if ethics are supposed to be a reflection of society. If you don't, if you believe that society changes, then you have to believe that ethics are malleable and that they're constantly changing. You know, we're we're in a war now, uh, where there's a big war happening, uh, obviously, and this has got us all thinking about this stuff. I imagine this is where this is coming from, Connor. Everything is just so complicated these days, and I just think, man, I know this is kind of a cop out, but to kind of scrap the philosophy and just go right to the spirituality. Like it's all about loving kindness, man. It's all about loving kindness. And I've been listening to a lot of these near-death experiences on YouTube. There's thousands of people relaying their near-death experiences. And it's absolutely incredible how there are these universal concepts that happen in each one. But it all comes back to like, be more loving, be more loving, be more kind in everything you're doing, that that's what you remember, that's what you honor, that's what you cherish. And that's what they seek to do when they come back from these near-death experiences. So I know that's kind of shifting the conversation, but this has been on my mind a lot. So for me, it's how can we simplify it? Just go to love, baby. I think that's a great answer. That's it. That's it. That's all we got. Sorry. We get. We solved his problem. I we can solved... expound on that. Sorry, I didn't want to cut into. No, much no, there. please. <laughs> no, I think that's a great answer. Um, I'd agree because there's just again so many things that you can overcomplicate it almost when you when you try and get into the weeds of it a bit. I think so. Really reducing it down to, am I loving those people? You know, right around me, and am I loving people to the best that I can with my decisions? I think that that is. I mean, yeah, what more can you really do at a certain level? (laughs) Yeah, when it gets right down to it, that can be your guide and it will never let you down. 
And it doesn't matter. You can be atheist or you can be Catholic or Jain or Muslim or uh, Wiccan. It doesn't really matter. Connor from Arizona, thanks for calling. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. We love you, milkshakers. Well, love is a strong word. No, it's love. It's all about love. I love you, Reza. (laughs) I love you too, Ray. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Metaphysical Milkshake is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Cradwell, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. Original music by Jeff Tang and Scott Tang. Hey, by the way, there's something that uh, Anand and I both have in common, which is that neither of us will ever be invited back to the Aspen Institute. What's the Aspen Institute? <laughs> That's what he was talking about, where all the like the rich white people oh. around the world get together and talk about how awesome the they are. The super elite, yeah. 